Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Ragtime. It was the musical style that took America and even the world by storm, the precursor to jazz, the whole motherload of African-American-based musical styles that are now considered simply American. For 30 years, between the 1890s and the First World War, ragtime reigned supreme in dance halls and entertainment venues throughout the United States. But what was ragtime? Where did it come from? What was its relationship with the other musical styles and schools of the day? And how did the American people contend with this strange new music? With me today to answer these questions and more is Ed Berlin renowned author and musicologist and ragtime expert and author, among other things, of Ragtime, a musical and cultural history. Ed, welcome. Well, thank you. Good to meet you, Avi. Good to meet you, too. So let's start with the most basic question of all. What was Ragtime? How did it emerge? And what differentiated it from other styles of music that existed at the time? Ragtime varies. Ragtime changes according to when we are speaking. Uh, what period are we speaking of? In the ori- uh, originally, the word rag probably emerged sometime in the 1880s, and it referred to a party, a rent party, very often in black, uh, in, in the black neighborhoods. Um, People would have parties with music and charge an an entrance fee in order to raise enough money for rent. This became very popular in Harlem in the 1920s when the term rent parties emerged. uh, Originally, it was just called rag. Gradually, the term rag referred to the dance styles of the rent parties, of the rags and then finally to the music by the 1890s rag referred to music the term rag time was not yet in use that began around eight around 1896 now uh what is the music today the music is a uh, very lively syncopated music um what we mean by syncopated this goes back to the uh, 1890s, uh, wh- where the music had a march beat, a re- regular march beat, and against that there would be a melody with accents off the beat, 
and that was the effect of syncopation. Originally, it was probably vocal music coming from the minstrel stage. By the way, minstrels were not only whites imitating blacks. Uh, the minstrel stage also had blacks imitating whites imitating blacks. And then uh, some of the black minstrels started calling themselves the real coons, and they were just presenting their own music as they saw it. Okay, so why don't we elaborate a bit on uh, the what you said, the real coons, because in your book uh, on ragtime, you say that a big part of ragtime in this period was based on what were called the coon songs, That's right. uh, which had something of a controversial cachet in the United States. What were those? Uh, why were they so popular and why were they so controversial? They were songs that were mostly extremely disparaging and insulting to African-Americans. Uh, the most notorious of them was a song titled All Coons Look Alike to Me. Ironically, uh, this song is not really a, a terrible song. It's, it, it's the, uh, the singer tells that his girlfriend left him and she has a new boyfriend. And with this new boyfriend, all other boys look alike. But she uses the word coons. And so the song became notorious during race riots. Uh, whites would start singing all coons look alike to me to be insulting. The term coon itself was not seen as so insulting at the time. I noticed, for example, in the uh, 1890s in Sedalia, Missouri, a town where Scott Joplin at that time lived, in a black church, a black band was performing coon, coon, coon. All coons, uh, it goes coon, 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 your color will never fade. And th this these were blacks performing for blacks. So I don't quite understand it, but it shows that the thought of what is insulting was quite different at the time. Um, African-Americans were not the only ones who were disparaged on stage and in song any ethnic group that can be easily identified by race or by dress or by speech would be disparaged on stage so you might have african-americans on stage specializing in being uh, italians or in jews or chinese everyone was uh, liable to be uh, a, a victim. Yeah, I um, I did a previous episode on uh, on vaudeville, and I noticed that in, in vaudeville they did that a lot. The different groups yes. made fun of each other very, um, usually pretty lightly, though sometimes though sometimes not quite as much. Um, you mentioned Scott Joplin, and I'd like to uh, dwell on him for a bit because he is the man most identified with ragtime, at least today, more than almost anybody else. That's Who right. was he, and how did he become this phenomenon, head and shoulders above everybody else, in terms of well, 
he became the phenomenon because he was better than anyone else. But he was not the beginning. Uh, he was not the father of ragtime. Ragtime existed before he wrote, before he composed his first rag. Uh, his musical beginnings were as a quartet singer, uh, barbershop quartet style. And uh, in the early 1890s, he was traveling around the country, mostly in the northern states and in Canada with, with a quartet. And he was apparently extremely good. I mean, the notices were all excellent. Uh, it wasn't until... 1899 that he published his first reg. By that time, there was more than 100 regs in publication. He was more sophisticated in, in his music. His melodies were better. His harmonies were certainly much better. And this was recognized by people who liked ragtime, by people who by, by people who performed ragtime. Um, General Morton who claimed to be the inventor of jazz, said certainly Scott Joplin was the greatest ragtime composer. King Oliver, who was Louis Armstrong's first mentor, supposedly had a collection of Scott Joplin rags. Now, uh, the ragtime era really went from the 1890s until about World War I. By 1917, uh, the new style of jazz. And uh, even though jazz took over at that point, um, Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Reg never, never faded. It was played throughout the 20s. In the 1930s, it was used in movies, most often in barroom scenes. It's a piece that just never died. And always made some money. So, I uh, I had the pleasure of uh, once again speaking of Joplin. I had the pleasure of watching uh, an amateur documentary about Joplin um, a few days ago in preparation for this episode, uh, talking about uh, Joplin's origins. In uh, he was originally born in Texas, uh, and he grew up there, and he received much of his musical training. Um, uh, with uh, a uh, interestingly enough a Jewish uh, classical trainer and uh, and and the like uh, I noticed and you also mentioned in your book that there was something of a dispute uh, some ragtime composers wanted their pieces done note by note very precisely and some wanted to improvise a little bit more uh, could you perhaps elaborate a little bit more like on that well, I, the only composer I'm aware of who insisted that his music be, should be played as written was Scott Joplin. Uh, ragtime performers, though, played it any way they wanted, and improvisation was common. For one reason, many of the early ragtime performers could not read music, and they would just pick up a piece of rag here, another piece of rag there, and they would combine them. It made no difference. Uh, Scott Joplin was intent on learning music theory. He wanted to understand composition. Uh, he went to a college in, in Sedalia, Missouri, a college for African-Americans. Uh, music was not yet considered 
uh, a collegiate study. So he, he, so we don't know precisely what he studied at that time. He was probably performing. He picked up some information on, on, on theory. We don't know how much, but uh, there is testimony that in the earliest days, he could not really notate his own compositions correctly. Later on, he became quite expert at notating the music, doing things that no other popular composer would do in the notation. He understood the theory of what he was doing. So understanding that and talking about how to play it, uh, let's go a bit to the customer side. Um, where was ragtime played um, in the era before radio? Uh, where, where, if I if I was an average American anywhere in the United States and I wanted to hear ragtime, where would be the best place to go? Well, there's one early writer on ragtime who claims he went to the brothels to hear the music, <laughs> like reading uh, Playboy for the articles. That's that's right. <laughs> uh, however, you know, it, at least in the black communities, I found that. In, 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 in some areas it was used it was uh ragtime was played at at uh, literary events at events of uh, of, um, of of the black uh, newspaper reporters sometimes there were complaints about this but that's where it was performed uh, usually though the music was played not only in brothels but in bars in saloons, in dance halls, and there it became very impop very popular. This is what really popularized ragtime, the fact that it was such, uh, such good music to dance to, but was also played in, uh, in band concerts, uh, small orchestras. So it, it was played pretty much everywhere. Certainly, once the music publishing business got started, uh, it was played in the home. So given its popularity and how it's swept through the country, um, in the previous episode, uh, I spoke with uh, Professor Stork about how- Professor uh, who? St uh, Stork, um, he, he's a, published a reader about um, marching bands. Oh, okay, fine. And uh, he talked about how I thought that jazz just swept it all away. And he said, no, the music actually lasted as a popular genre until like the Second World War. Um, was with the, was it just the Maple Leaf Rag that survived uh, the jazz craze? Uh, or did ragtime in general perhaps end up taking a secondary position but not entirely disappearing? Well, I'm not sure exactly when jazz began, but it certainly became popular in 1917. When a when the original Dixieland jazz band went to New York, and they became the Rage, that brought in the term jazz. At that time, originally it was spelled J A S S, <laughs> and th there are various spellings. Probably, probably, you know, very few rags went into the early jazz period. Uh, Maple Leaf Rag, of course, was the big one. Uh, another Scott Joplin, original rags was popular. Um, 12th Street Reg by, by Uday Bobin was extremely popular. But the, uh, 
jazz developed its own repertory. Around, 19, around 1941, a group of uh, jazz musicians in California, the Yerba Buena, uh, Yerba Buena Jazz Band, wanted to find the roots of jazz. And what they found was ragtime. At that time, you had to ha you had to find the original music. There were no uh, printed collections, uh, uh, collections of folios of ragtime music as there as there are today. And they were always very ex these musicians were quite excited whenever they could locate another Scott Joplin rag, although they they played other rags as well. Uh, the earliest pianist in the in the 1940s, who was playing this music, was, uh, think of it, he was a friend of mine, Wally Rose, who in, in his waning years, I got to know, we became good friends at that point. But uh, he told me they were always thrilled when they could find another Scott Joplin Red. So perhaps my final question would be this. Um, we know, for instance, that even today, there are regional differences in when it comes to all sorts of things like country and rap and different kinds of musical genres. Were there regional variants of ragtime or was there basically one big style and different variations? Well, before radio, styles had to be regional, but musicians traveled around. I mean, when Jelly Roll Morton went from... Uh, New Orleans to Canada, he found jazz musicians. He found ragtime musicians there. Uh, Kid Ory went to California. He left uh, New Orleans, went to California. He found ragtime musicians there. Um, New York perhaps had a slightly different style because the, uh, the major concert halls, halls were in New York. And so people were accustomed to hearing a higher standard of music making. But I mean, when, when uh, Scott Joplin was living in Sedalia, Missouri, uh, this is a small town in Missouri, he was writing very sophisticated ragtime there. And uh, he had several students and they followed his style in New York. In Baltimore, in the Eastern, there was a there was an Eastern style originally. Uh, one big name was Ub Blake. That's uh, first name was spelled E U B Y, and that's referred to the Eastern school. Gradually, it all emerged. By the late teens, people who were calling their music ragtime. Uh, were playing and evolved music that no longer sounded at all like ragtime. And this is what brought rag, this is what brought uh, jazz on. One of the uh, musicians who was very, very much influenced by the, new, the original Dixieland jazz band when he heard it in New York in 1917 was um, Jimmy Durante. He was originally known as Ragtime Jimmy. Mm. Uh, once he heard that music, he understood this is the music that was coming. And he created a new band, which was J uh, Jimmy Durante's Ragtime Band. 
And this was an integrated band to some extent also, uh, as the clarinetist in the band was a mulatto who could pass for white. Of course, Durante and the other musicians knew that he had black heritage. Uh, this seems to have been true for many jazz musicians. They did not have the problems of integrating their, their bands as long as they were not shown in public. So they might, so blacks and whites might record jazz together, even though they would not appear in public together. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Whiteman, for example, who was an orchestra leader playing popular music, but he brought a number of big jazz musicians into his orchestra, all white musicians. He wanted to bring black musicians in as well, but his, uh, his managers said, if you do that, you won't have any bookings. So he had only white musicians. But he understood music. He wanted to have black musicians. You know what? That's an interesting point to follow up on. I know that my previous one was just sure. the final question. Um, so you mentioned the struggles of integration of jazz musicians. So what did ragtime musicians do, especially you got people like Joplin and, and stuff like that, given how how uh, how difficult it was for black for black Americans to break through uh, in that world? Well, uh, Joplin wrote some songs with whites who would bring him their lyrics and and uh, he would set it to music. Mm -hmm. One of the very early successful ragtime performers was Ben Harney, who was known as the first white man to play ragtime. Yubi Blake and others, other black musicians, claimed that Harney was passing for white, that he was really black. I spoke to Yubi Blake about this in 1979. He was born in 1886 or 1887. He, he lived until 1983. He claimed he was 100 then, and we believed him, but we've since found out a little. it was a little bit different. But at any rate, uh, about Ben Harney, and he said, well, he did not actually know Ben Harney. He had never met him, but everyone knew that he was passing. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it could be he, he, because Ben Harney in his act would very often uh, bring a black man on stage with him. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a theory which has not been proven, but it looks convincing to me that he was a Melungeon. That's spelled M-E-L-U-N-G-E-O-N, -E -E which was a mixed race group in, in Kentucky and West Virginia. It was blacks, whites, Indians, uh, Native Americans, Many different groups, including Jews, were part of this. When I was when I was teaching for a while at Brooklyn College, I told a bit about Ben Harney. A student came to me, a black student, and he said thinks he is a Melungeon, and uh, he comes from a town in West Virginia, in which everyone is related, white and black, and he has a cousin 
who is black, very black, but uh, is he has a straight nose and he has blue eyes. You know, just showing is just an incredible mixture of races. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, just in general, this has been very interesting. Um, you've definitely given me and my listeners uh, a wonderful introduction to a very important uh, milestone in American cultural history and in, in Black American history. Um, thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Corner.